I don't write bad sentences. So like, you know, I know that sounds like terrible to say, but there are plenty of things I suck at, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but writing bad sentences is not one of them. You know, I write good sentences. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is the professional word slanger, Nana Nkweti, author of the short story collection, Walking on Cowrie Shelves. In our conversation, Nana explains why she upended her New York life where she was writing for a university marketing department to put her fiction first and the return she expected on her investment. I'd already had a professional um, career before I went to Iowa. I'm coming to this, you know, finally privileging this later in life. I'm not going to wait like 15 years for that fifth book to pop, you know, so let me figure out how to get, it, get things started. As, you know, book one. Take, yes, exactly. With her goal to make her first book, the book that pops, Nana is living her manifested dreams. She breaks down the $60,000 differential that may exist between selling a short story collection and selling a novel. The thunderclap moments in her writing, she says, are like catching lightning in a bottle. And why to this day, she says books are her best friends. That and more when Black and Published continues. So let's jump right in. My first question is always, when did you know that you were a writer? Oh, I've known I was a writer since I was a wee one. Like, you know, if I didn't come out the, you know, the womb with like a pen in hand, I don't know. <laughs> I was always like, I was like this really quiet blue stocking of a child, just, just always constantly reading and writing little stories since I was like, you know, I, 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 I always tell people nine years old because those are the first stories that I actually have. I was, like I said, very quiet, very introverted, reading constantly and not even books that were necessarily always age appropriate because my father, every house that I've lived in, we've always had a library and my father was doing his um, doctoral thesis at that time. So you know, we would just love to go and, you know, you want to spend time around your daddy. So you're always in there, you're picking up books, or you're reading like, you know, Henry James, and you don't know what these things mean, like, you know, but like, you know, preteen me was still reading them and, and, you know, absorbing words, words, words. And that's kind of been my trajectory throughout, trajectory throughout, just constantly reading and just like gaining a facility with like, you know, writing and enjoying writing. But you're Cameroonian, correct? Mixture, yes. Okay, because you have a line in the collection, Dr. Lawyer Engineer, the High Holy Trinity for African Parents. So mm -hmm. how did writing work its way into the Your Life Calling? I mean, honestly, like, it's a very broad strip, painting a very broad stroke about African parents in general, you know. My background is Cameroonian American, and my parents, you know, like, came here as college students my parents are relatively progressive, <laughs> like, you know, they always encourage my artistic interests and, and throughout with all of the kids, right? You know, my mom put me in ballet and put me in music and put me, you know, so I played the flute, I did ballet, put me in all these arts and crafts. So they were always encouraging that and allowing for that. It's just that, you know, that practical African parent side came out with them, just like making sure that you 
also make sure make sure you got like a job a job or you know um you know like a fallback career and i know that's that's like kind of like part of who i am as well because it did talk to me for a while to privilege being a full-time writer and even with that i was just like oh i'm gonna write i've always been writing i said oh even when i decided okay i'm gonna write full-time let me go get a degree and put a degree under it put some, <laughs> some respect on that name right you know um and that's what ended up happening but did I need to do that? No, but that's just part of my own African upbringing. Like, you know, I got to professionalize this in a way that credentials make it make sense to me. So then what did that look like, your journey of professionalizing the, the, the title of writer? How did that look for you? It involved me actually just leaving my job. I was working in New York and just, you know, deciding that I was going to move to Iowa and get my MFA, you know. Um, so I found myself from the concrete streets of Brooklyn moving to the cornfields of Iowa, and that was such an interesting journey. Um, but it was like one of the best cho- choices I made for my life. I ended up spending a good four years there, but my degree program was two years, and you know, just doing the being ensconced in like that that space where you're constantly talking about literature, looking at great works of writing, and and pushing up against people who challenge you to be better, you know. It was great. It was a wonderful experience. And, you know, professionalizing it, you know, these people end up being your colleagues. They end up being your, you know, beta readers throughout your your career. And it's something that I tell to my my students right now that, like, you know, these, you know, connections that we're calling friendship right now, which are friendship, of course, but they're also like, you know, this is going to be your tribe, you know, people who can, like, you know, maybe they're the people who can tell you, okay, sign with this agent or look into this. So that was one of the things that, you know, I I encourage people just to kind of think of these moments of trying to um, build your professional network and and build your access into the publishing industry writ large, because it can be an opaque industry. It's a predominantly white industry. So um, I knew coming in as a woman of color that I wanted to have the best credentials I could because I went to the best school and I went to make sure that I met professors and who had a certain kind of access, you know, they lend you their access basically. So in many ways, and that's what it is. Mm. So then when you got to Iowa, was that when you first started and doing the MFA, was that when you first started working on a collection? So some of these stories, because like, you know, I had been like doing writing all along, you know, I'm not really thinking about maybe I guess in the back of my mind, thinking about publishing, but not really privileging publishing or sending anything out. That didn't happen until after I actually, you know, went to Iowa and received confirmation in some ways. I mean, I'd had gotten good, great feedback, but, you know, sometimes you have to kind of, a switch has to go off in your mind and saying, yes, I am a writer, you know. So I had to kind of, you know, say, hey, get over yourself, just whatever little perfectionist thing you've got going on that's keeping you from acknowledging that this is your calling get over it you know like don't be out there thinking okay everything like everything has to be perfect 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 before you put things in the world you know um and just allowing myself to to put my writing in all its imperfections and weirdness and messiness and you know out there in the world was like a, a great gift that I gave myself and that happened because I was amongst many writers who were not who were doing the same and it gave me you know courage to, to say hey you know I have a voice and I have something to say you mentioned earlier about when you were at Iowa that you know, your professors and that whole kind of incubation of being in this workshop and doing the MFA with all of these different people, you know, they kind of lend you their credibility and all of these things. 
So with you having these stories that you were already working on, when it came time for you to put yourself out there and to think about publishing and think about submission, what was that process like for you? I was intentional when I was putting things out there in the world. Like I would try to um, send my work out to places where, of course, that I thought were a good fit in terms of like their literary sensibility. Yes. But I was also trying to say, okay, well, what can give me the most bang for the buck in terms of like the name recognition for this particular, you know, prize or for this particular award or some money? It'd be nice to have some money. You know, I was a graduate student at that time. I was just like, oh, that one has a, that part, that has a $5,000 prize. Okay, I see you, you know, so, <laughs> so that was happening, you know. So like, you always have to be intentional. Like, even when I chose my publisher, I was intentional about that. Right? I chose like, you know, working with Grey Wolf because I knew that they had a, you know, a track record of really championing books that were like a little weird like mine, but short story collections like mine. And also like making sure that they they were positioned well in the world. Like, like you know, they were given like the same type of like, you know, support and, and I guess like, you know, publicity and promotion that like larger houses seem to kind of reserve for novels, right? So you have to kind of make these choices throughout. And then also then later on, like, you know, that choosing a publisher that they get what you're trying to do on the page and also try to position, you know, once again, position you so that, you know, you don't like have to be five books in before people know your name, you know, mm. sometimes that happens. And I feel like there's some people who languish on the line, even though that their first and second and third books were amazing. All right. So then let's talk about publishing because you said you were intentional about choosing your publisher. When you were going through that process with the agenting and the pu- and choosing a publisher, did you like just you and your agent work on a list of publishers to to pitch to, or like how did that go? Oh yeah, I did a pros and cons list, like because I'm very like um, I'm a Capricorn, so I'm very like that. That's how I roll. So I did a pros and cons list. I sent that list out to my family. So I was, <laughs> you know, like my brain trust. So do you do you approach your writing in the same way with this very analytical mindset about like this is what I need to do in this story? The same way that you approach the business. Oh hell no! I wish I could say I did. <laughs> uh-uh. Uh-uh. That probably my brain just like switch all the way off. <laughs> I mean, let me not say that because it actually happens in the revision process. So I have the toolkit, but when I'm writing, it's very initial draft. It's very instinctual. It's just like, you know, it's all impulses and and things that interest me in the world and voices. I'm very, 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 very voice driven. Right. So like, like, it's like, what is that character's voice or that narrator's voice sound like in my head? And I just mm. follow them wherever they want to take me, right? And then later on, like, you know, when I'm trying to do the analysis of, okay, like something is a little bit off, rotten in the state of Denmark, what's going on? Or now I get all analytical and crappy, like, okay, maybe you need to add a scene here or maybe you need to do that. But that's the, that's the, that's the process of like looking back at it, like, you know, but when I'm in that moment and writing it, it's just like a, that lizard brain that just like makes things. So that's what I'm using. It's all instinct, so. So like as you're just going about your daily life, this the characters will come to you as you are just reading and noticing other things and that's how you craft? Yeah, basically I think most writers write what they know, you know, and I think like because I'm, you know, like especially this age of information, we're constantly reading and taking all this interesting stuff in the world, like taking in interesting factoids and learning new things about, you know, the world around us, you know. 
And then sometimes those things would just be in my head. And, but then it's like, not until like one day, you know, I'll be like struck. It's like being like, Ooh, thunderstruck. Like, Oh, that's, a, ooh, I like how that sounds like how that. And then that sentence becomes somebody's a voice. And then that voice would be like, okay, let's go. And that's what happens. I wish I could say it was like, you know, like I, I'm better now about like, you know, being much more intentional about sitting down and having a writing practice. But <laughs> for, the, for the longest time, it would just be like all of a sudden thunderstruck, clap, thunderclap. I, then I would start writing a, a, in a voice and then it would come to me like that. So. Okay. I, that just, it strikes me as interesting because I guess for me, the things happening in life creep their way in once I start writing but usually like my thunderclap moment is just the title. Like I always come up with a title for a project before I know anything really else about it. And then I'm just like, okay, so what is this? <laughs> and then I have to keep having the conversation with myself and the unnamed carriage. Like, well, who are you? What is your name? What do you do? And mm. then that download comes. Sometimes it comes the same time as the title comes. Sometimes it comes gradually. And then it ends up just being notes in my phone until I've got enough to so say, like, oh, okay, I know, I know who these people are. I can now write your story. Um, where they That's start saying, when they yeah. start saying like, you should start writing our story because we're impatient with you now. But yeah. And just, yeah. I, I mean, like, like I describe it, like sometimes I'm feeling like possesses. It's, I mean, it's interesting to you say like you, that you said that they start telling us, write our story. You know, um, I talked to my friend, yeah, Jesse, and she talked about like, coming into stories through an image right so mm. she's very kind of ekphrastic and image-based when she starts like moving into a story for me it's voice for you it's title that's interesting i never heard it's somebody say title so i like that you know it's like for as many writers as you talk to we as many ways as you hear how to move into storytelling so i think it started for me when i was like really for real in like undergrad that i would have papers to write and i would sometimes wait until the last minute because I would need to be able to say it out loud. Mm. So for me, it's like, if I can start saying out loud the words that should be on the page, let me go sit down at this computer and catch mm. it right fast. Mm. And so, so I'm just curious about that, like what that thunderclap moment is like. Yeah, I remember like, so um, that's what it's like. You, exactly that. It's that wake up, wake up, wake up you have to catch it while it's like catching fire. Like you really do have to kind of like allow for that when news to hit you. Um, I mean, I found that it's difficult. I can always write well, you know, I've got good sentences at the wazoo. I don't have a problem with that. Right. So, but the stories that I end up wanting to, you know, work with long-term are when that voice is very insistent like that. And it's helpful for me, especially because I know that I, as a person, have a very particular and distinct voice. So, like, those characters who who can push through my consciousness and say, oh, um, I'm going to do you one better. Let me tell you about a story, you know. <laughs> you know, let me tell you, like, you know. Um, let me not go into some Fresh Prince of Bella. <laughs> 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 but that is exactly what happens. Like, you know, like, so they start and like, you know, it might be in the morning that I'm talking about. It might just, and you have to do it, you know. And then, but once they've got me, I, you know, I can take some time and just, you know, move back into them again. It's fine. But it's that initial flow that you've got to make sure that you capture it. Because it's that lightning in a bottle and you capture it 
And then you can go back and like, you know, you know, like now I can go back and revisit any of those stories and edit them and get immediately get back into voice, even though they're so disparate, you know, mm-hmm. because I know that those voices, but like when you're first trying to kind of like mold the voice and see what that voice wants to tell you, you've got to capture it. So, um, so it's interesting. My collection was written that way, but my novel, like, you know, is very good because I can write, you know, <laughs> it's not, I'm, I can't, I don't write bad sentences. So like, you know, I know that sounds like terrible to say, but there are plenty of things I suck at, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but writing bad sentences is not one of them, you know, good, you know, I, you know, I write good sentences. So, um, but now looking back at the novel, I'm just like, Hey, did you know, like you need an, a better mixture of some of that, like underclap moments, plus this whole, workman like so I'm going back and revisiting to kind of add some of that energy because you know you can tell like from my collection that I was writing it with a lot of joy on the page but my novel you can feel like I was just like mm-hmm. yeah, I got labor. to write novels even though I didn't want you know <laughs> it's labor yeah right so I didn't want it to feel like that so now I'm like going back with that sense of joy that I have from like talking about my collection so much and being in that modality you know, that I'm just like, oh, okay, there was this some good stuff here. Don't let that, like, you know, the circumstances under which you wrote this novel make you feel some kind of way. Revisit it, so. You make it sound like you're writing the novel under duress. <laughs> it, it, was, it felt like it because people were just basically holding my collection hostage and saying, oh, we can't sell this collection unless you have a novel to package with it. So that's what was, ha- that's what exactly what happened. So, I mean, that, and that's like, you know, the business part of it, right? You know, there's the business of privileging novels over collections. And I was just fortunate that like, you know, like fortunate, but also intentional about put, putting work out in the world that could shine on its own and allow for a publisher to say, hey, you've got something here, we'll buy it, you know? And that's what happened. But like, you know, left to, you know, the powers that these device, you know, their devices would be like, oh, we can only buy this if you promise us that this is going to be, that, that novel is going to be coming down, the, you know, the pipeline. So, um, and I feel like, you know, and it's fine. I feel like I'm going to, you know, the novel, the revisions are going really, really well. I'm happy with that, right? But um, I think I'm going to be a short story. I, I think I tend to be a short story writer. I like short stories. Okay. So that means we're going to get the novel though. Just as a reader now, I'm just like, you know, I love oh, yeah. the stories. It's, so, it, but you're going to get a much more rambunctious novel than <laughs> I would have, you know, you would have gotten if I had just like put it out just because I was meeting some kind of quota, you know. Okay. So it's going to be fire, which is why I'm happy about it now. It's fire because I, I feel fire, inspired and fiery now, right? You know, but when I was writing that, I was just like, mm, <laughs> that got me out here force marching, you know, writing novels when I didn't want to, you know. I so. love the attitude behind, like, look, I'll give it to you, but it's, I don't feel like it. <laughs> I love yeah, that. I mean, look, I was just doing it to meet, like I said, because I was just meeting people's expectations and no good can come from that. When you're writing a novel and you have to feel invested for that long term, it, it's not good to come from a place of art, of artifice. It has to feel real and authentic to you. Yeah, I really didn't know that about the publishing industry that it's like, oh, we got to do the novel first before we do the short stories until doing this podcast. And so I understand now why so many of the short story writers that I've talked to now all say, and the novel's coming out in a whenever. Mm. There's no date, but it's coming. Right. I had a friend who was selling her collection and they asked her once again to marry it, you know, to sell her collection. She had to marry it with um, a novel. 
So just the the not the collection itself was sold, let's say like for forty thousand dollars, right? Just a one page synopsis of the novel got the hundred thousand dollars, right? So basically, you're saying like just like so your belief system is that like a finished collection is ha- is only worth half a proposed <laughs> like a one page proposal for a novel, basically. So that's the the mentality. So wow. And you put some numbers on that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's that's what it is. So it's like, yes, it's a business, but it's also it's our art. So, you know, you have to figure out how to marry those two the best you can. So then once you came to have your collection, was it complete when you went to Grey Wolf from everything from your MFA and before then? Or did you have, have to add stories to it? Um, my, my collection was complete. I, you know, I think that, you know, I had a conversation with my editor asking, you know, did I have anything else that I w- might want to add? And I ended up adding one more story, which, you know, I had written, but I wasn't sure whether, you know, when you're not really sure, like how things hang, especially because my subject matter is so varied. And so, you know, um, it has a lot of range. So that, that's, that's the magic of working with an editor who gets that, like, hey, Let's just lean into that. Lean, lean into your, you know, your eclecticism, right? Right. Just lean into that and don't like try to make everything of a type. So that story that you think might not be um, a part of this particular collection, perhaps let's let's look at it and you know revisit your your thoughts on that and then see whether it can mar- it can be hang well with and play well with others. And that's what happened. Do you have your collection with you? Are you interested in me reading something? Or? Yes, please. Okay. What are you interested in me reading from? My favorite story is The Living Infinite, so. Okay. (laughs) That's not a story I read more often. That's so interesting. All right, Black and Published family. Before we get into Nana's reading of her story, The Living Infinite, here's a little bit about her collection, Walking on Cowrie Shells. It's made up of 10 stories that span genres from myth to horror to graphic novels, all while interweaving both African-American and Cameroonian culture and describing the intersections therein and what it means to be both and. All right, here's Nana. So let me see if I can get it. So, all right. Across a humid bar in a beachside gazebo, Set so close to the shore that the pounding of the whose beat nearly rivaled the din of crashing surf, Byron laid eyes on her. He was all fire burn and swagger, ordering a grasshopper for the lady in the coral dress without so much as a bonsoir sherry. And though she was a whiskey neat woman, Nala wasn't one to turn down a complimentary cocktail for the good-looking man bold enough to buy it. Full of big dreams and sweeping plans, the Akata was nothing like the tontons of her deep, sleepy waterfront town, or even the big shots she bedded in the bustling port town of Douala. The hunt grew new to her, her, Amami Wata, a seasoned seducer of thousands of men, now made eager and shy, trembling as he took her hand. She thrilled to it as they danced hip to hip. She inhaled an intoxicating mixture of clean mint, briny sweat, and something unknowable that reminded her of whale song and undertoes and dark ocean depths where there be monsters. Thank you. Why was it important for you to tell 
this kind of fantastical story about a mermaid come to life in the husband that she loved. Mm. I'm that whiskey meat woman, but I'm also that grasshopper woman. Like I'm always doing complicating my narratives, right? So I knew that I wanted to tell a love story and I wanted to kind of tell the love story, but from the improbable perspective of like this woman who, you know, thinks she knows what, you know, love is, L-O-V-E is all about, but then finds herself like taken aback and like something fresh. So I knew that I wanted to write in a magical realist thing. You know, I'm a big fan of like, you know, Morrison and Gabriel um, Garcia Marquez, who gets name dropped as Gabo in this piece. So, um, yeah, so all those things are happening. And then, but then of course, you know, I can't write about like, you know, New Orleans without thinking about Katrina. And I can't write about that space without thinking about like, you know, the history of the Black people who made that, you know, New Orleans what it is by, you know, contributing music and um, food and and just like in churching it up and black you know belief system so that all comes through in just building the world and you know I never try to be like you know didactic with my stories like saying oh like look what you did here but those things just naturally of course come out to me like you can't be a person living in the world without you know being having these be your concern I can't be a person living in the world in this body, in this place and time, without thinking about climate change, without thinking about um, gender equality, and without thinking about racial equality. So these things are all like kind of subterranean and they just bubble up through the stories naturally. Yes. I like that you said that even though you don't intend to be like address this issue head on, it just kind of comes up because in the dance, the fire dance story, where they talk about the maternal war stories, I was mm. like, oh, she went there. <laughs> and I thought it was so interesting because, you know, that's what women do, especially after you have kids. It's like all the moms get together and then they talk about what really goes down when you're having kids, raising kids, getting pregnant, all of that. And it's not pretty. <laughs> and so I was like, that little aside, I could see that so clearly. And so... Was it important for you to elucidate those like internal spaces of women mm-hmm. and and give them voice? Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of those things that I think is one of the great tragedies of writing. You know, we, 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 tend, we tend to privilege like this kind of masculine type of writing where everything has to be about like, you know, these larger global things like a war or, you know, some kind of, you know, something or conquest or politics. Like it's got to be about something like a big big subject you know whereas the domestic sphere is considered like you know too feminine and you know and and often when you see like you know awards that i mean this is actually borne out by literary awards that are kind of often given to like um male writers which we all know and uh and often male writers are privileged because they're they're seen as like you know writing about like those type of topics that people think have that kind of gravitas right Whereas there's so much like, you know, heft, heft and depth that can be, you know, translated through these spheres. It's through these intimate spaces, right? You know, um, and I don't think that those domains should be, you know, stopped at just because, you know, these are, this is the, world, the way the world gets me in those spaces, you know. Um, so that's, of course, something that I'm always going to be writing about because I, I privilege like, you know, women in, in all of our kind of multiple identities. So yes, we're, you know, I'm going to write women who are 
having business meetings and you know in the boardroom, but they're also I'm going to recommend who are in spaces where you know there is no male gaze and they're having conversations about their you know some of these essential quintessential moments of womanhood. So you write a lot about Cameroonian women and what that tradition and culture is like, and it made me wonder because you are looking at America and Black Americans in particularly in a very, it's not harsh, but it's very like, this is what it is, plain spoken kind of way. Like there's no like bones about what it is. And so I guess my question for you then is through the lens of your characters and through your own experience, what is America to the immigrant? Yeah, so it's interesting. Like, so there's a couple of things happening. Like I said, I, I'm I'm showing a range of black identities without being like you know, pussyfooting about. It. I try to be as politic and you know, and try to be like show sides of of like our interactions in ways that might not necessarily feel comfortable sometimes because they, there is hurt and pain sometimes, you know, in those interactions. But I feel like they're real and they're true, you know, and. So there's a mixture and a range of those kind of like interactions of, especially for me, because my sense of America and, and Americanness came through um, Black Americans, right? You know, I'm Black in America. And then I also grew up in predominantly African-American spaces, you know, Black Americans raised me up, but also they're like, you know, like what I'm talking about in the story is that there are also those points of tension where like, you know, um, where Africans also raised me up, and Africans had thoughts about about Black Americanness, and Black Americans had thoughts about like what it meant to be African, and those tensions sometimes are shown in the stories. Um, sometimes those tensions are you know um, are already healed, and we've got moments of love and joy and connection, like as in the Living Infinite. So it's a range, you know. I you know I can't show like you know like like just the, just one side, you know, I can't show just the prettiness and, and people loving on each other in one show, in one story without showing like the moments when, like when they're, when we, when we hurt each other. It's human nature. Like I think, you know, especially being like um, black folks who have like been marginalized by so many different cultures, by the world at large, right? Like that hurt and is hurt. So hurt people can hurt people. So I write that, yeah. Walking on calorie shells is like the American version of walking on eggshells. So with that title and then all of the topics that you talk about, because they're all like, you know, those sensitive subjects that, you know, you you talk about behind closed doors again, those intimate internal spaces. What did you want, I guess, readers to take away from not just the title, but and then the topics and the themes across the scope of all of these stories? I mean, walking on calorie shells. You know, like I said, that because I, I I interrogate and speak about these like you know intimate spaces, and it, it it involves a lot of people who are just becoming and trying to figure things out, or and who are in liminal moments where they're at thresholds, right? So that walking on calorie shells can be you know a young woman trying to figure out whether she wants to be an artist, but this is not something that's allowable within my cultural context. You know, I'm walking on calorie shells. Um, around my mother, around my own ambitions. So that's, you know, that kind of tension of uncertainty there, right? You know, um, I'm a 200-something-year-old mommy wata, you know. I think I'm bad as as all get-all, but, like, I'm, I'm falling in love with a mortal man. 
I'm walking on Carrie's shells and uncertain about what love is when I thought I was this seductress who knew what it was, you know. Um, I am between identities. I'm African, but I'm also American. What does that look like? I'm walking on Carrie's shells trying to figure out, like, you know, how to take these two identities to make one whole. So that is what, you know, I'm, I'm interrogating and pushing when I'm writing these stories. And I think that's just a basic and universal, you know, human quest to figure it out, like figure out how can I make myself, you know, the best version of who I need to be in this world. You know, um, if you're living a conscious life and you're trying to live your, you know, of an evolved life and a realized life, you know, that's your journey, right? You know, you're walking on Carol shows at several moments in your life where you're becoming. So. All right. So I want to transition into a little speed round and a game before I let you go for the afternoon. What is your favorite book? My favorite book? Oh, my God. I mean, I would have told you for over a decade that, you know, my favorite book was Beloved. I would have told you forever, for over a decade that my favorite book was Pride and Prejudice. I would have told you for, you know, just different points of my life that books that have been seminal to my development, you know. So, um I can never thoroughly top five. Top five. Oh my god! Oh my god! Are you? You already gave here? me two. You said beloved oh, and pride and prejudice. Painful. And you don't even know how it's painful for me. I'm literally feeling my stomach clenching. <laughs> just trying to. It's like saying that, like you know, I feel like just by even naming them, it's like this discounting all those brilliant, brilliant writers of other, you know, that have made me who I am today. It's like me asking you, like, who your favorite uh, siblings are, you know? <laughs> just like, I was like, who you like better, your mama or your daddy? <laughs> you know? So I'm just, I'm very, I honestly, like, I say, like, you know, when I tell you that books are my best friends, I mean it in a very visceral love. I was a very, very introverted kid. Like, you know, when people say that, my mom says that I was, like, bubbly, but I remember being very quiet and reading a lot. So, like, when, he, when you basically asked me to tell you, like, who I like most, you know, amongst my friends, my people, my kinfolk. So it's it's tough, you know. So I would just say um, authors that have been seminal in my development and that I love, you know, um, of course, Tony Morrison, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, lots, you know, Octavia Butler, you know, um, like I really think about, like, you know, like, I, you know, I when I went to Africa and I'm reading African literature for the first time, I'm reading Chinua Achebe, I'm reading Ferdinando Yono, you know, when I started getting into this wonderful um, magical realist realm and trying to pushing the boundaries of my own writing with Karen Russell and Kevin Brockmeyer, you know, so that is kind of like how it goes. Like, you know, it depends upon what I'm doing at that moment and what I'm interrogating, the spaces I'm moving in creatively, you know, you know, that pushes me in so many different ways and feeds me in different ways. Like, I can't, I mean, there's graphic novels too. Like, I mean, there's just, if you want me to just go carry just go by, you know, genre. genre, by discipline, by, you know, it just, you. I, I mean, because while I was, all I was doing was reading Westerns, I'm reading Louis, you know, L'Amour, you know, so for a while, like, you know, it just, you know, it just depends, so. I understand. Oh my God, for real. My stomach was really clenching up for real. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Touch it up. You can give me the angina. <laughs> give me the agita. <laughs> well, I'm so sorry. Well, that answers my second question about who was your favorite author because you just gave me a list. Um, I'll move away from the superlatives. Yes, and... <laughs> please. Let's, let's do that. <laughs> All right. Um, 
if money were no option, where would you go? What would you do? And where would you live? Oh my goodness. New York. New York is like, I, I call it my spiritual home, even though I was born and raised in DC and also was raised in Cameroon, in Yaoundé, um, West Africa. But New York is where I feel like all parts of myself, I don't have to explain nothing. Like people just get it. Like, you know, like, you know, my, my, my name, you know, the, that multiplicity of, you know, New York is a place of like, everybody's everything. So that is a place where all the parts of myself may coexist very seamlessly. And um, so I would say that, that, you know, you know, like I, I, cause I, especially like, um, you know, if I was living in Africa, like have my coastal home, you know, and have like, you know, my treetop, like, you know, rainforest house over here in Kenya, you know, like I would love that. Like, I would love to have like a, a tree house, you know, like, so that's how I, <laughs> my mind thinks just like, you know, like, let me have my villa on a, you know, on, um, you know, Table Mountain in South Africa. And then like, you know, be bouncing between these places in New York where like is my spiritual home, but also like, you know, uh, adjacent, like my sister lives in Jersey, my mom and si- my other sister live in New York. So like just near family as well. So and, like my, and my, um, the rest of my Cameroonian bloodline is, is in, in DC. So like any place that, you know, allows me to be fed culturally, you know seamlessly integrates all my personalities and then you know i would just love that so okay name three things on your bucket list hmm i've been pretty intentional about doing things on my bucket list you know i've walked on the great wall of china i've gone to angkor wat and been amongst these you know thousand year old beautiful buddhist ruins you know so i've done a lot of really cool things like you know I don't think there's anything that is bucket listy that I haven't done you know like um of course things professionally that I'd like to do you know um things personally that I'd like to do I'd like to be a mom I'd like to um of course like write a comic book but those things are just like like random things that I know that are achievable but like those big outsized like big dream things like that like if I wanted to do it I've, I've tried to do it so that it won't be like when I'm like you know, I'm 70 and I'm all crotchety. And then you're just like, oh, my bucket list. Let me just try to run them down real quick. And I and then like, you, you try to do one thing and your hip breaks. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, womp, womp, womp. <laughs> you know, womp, womp, womp. <laughs> Let me not say that because my, my mom is like, you know, very vibrant, you know, woman of a certain age. But I'm just saying, you know, hyperbolically speaking, you know, I've tried to make sure that like I'm not like living my life for like one day I'll do this. Like I've tried to do things in the here and now, you know. Got it. What is your favorite sound? So like sometimes it just it just depends on the very, very moment in the instant, right? So like I love in the morning time on Sunday mornings to to hear like gospel. When I'm writing, I like to have like um like these binaural beats going in the background. Like it's like literally these kind of things that make your brain like brain waves pop and um yeah, sometimes. So sounds, huh? Mm-mm. I'm just going to leave those questions alone and go to my little game. It's called, oh my God. <laughs> it's called Rewriting the Classics. What's the one book you wished you would have written? Oh, I was going to say the Bible, but. <laughs> Lord. Okay. Um, let me say, I'm okay. So, so of course, you know, the Bible came out to me, but let me just say anything about Shakespeare. Let me just say that so that. 
so that I can move on from this existential crisis again. <laughs> All right. I don't know if we're moving on, but I'm going to try. What's one book where you want to change the ending and how would you do it? Okay, so like I said, I tried to purchase with one of my favorite books. One of the things I always enjoy but is like seeing like what um what what life looks like in for after after that happily ever after after that sad marriage scene. So I think you know I would like to see like you know you know more of that with that relationship of like you know because I you know I'm not a big fan of like okay um the prince puts the, the slipper on Cinderella's foot and then like you know there's a big kiss and then you don't see them changing diapers later on. So you know I like I like it. <laughs> I like authenticity. So I want, I want to see like, you know, what it looks like afterwards. So let's say that maybe that's what it is. Like we get a little bit of that, like in kind of epilogue, like fashion from Austin, but I would love to see like, you know, and I think people have done that with fan fiction and even reimaginings of their life after marriage, but I'm always curious to see what do Darcy and Elizabeth look like? in their dotage so who knows um just for the record changing diapers is overrated uh yeah um my last question for rewriting the classics is name a book that you think is overrated and why wow 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 (laughs) wow 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 are we really dropping bombs like that is what we doing is that what we're doing yes and people really answer these questions (laughs) Ernie's Hemingway, I don't get it, you know, never understand it, um, never understand his appeal, but it's a kind of certain kind of white masculinity that I don't find. I mean, I read, you know, the work, you know, his work in college, and I realized that people liked it, and I was like, oh, I just, okay, overrated for me. Not like, but but I'll read, a, I'll read Steinbeck and be like, ooh, yes, but, you know. But I also, like once again, I say I'm not his best reader, because I like maximalist writing. I like writing with a lot of energy and verb and he's very spare so it might not be the one for me so okay and now my final question for the interview which is actually an existential question oh, <laughs> oh Lord. Lord. really really it, i thought you i thought you were saying you were easing me out of that you know but this is the last question period so you mm-hmm. take as much time as you need mm-hmm. when you are dead and gone and among the ancestors what would you want someone to write about the words and work that you've left behind? Oh, wow. So I actually thought about things like this because like, you know, I have like a kind of love of like, you know, imagining my, my, my older um, babish self, like, you know, feeling like I got it all like figured out. So that's the fascinated me. And so I would think about like, Oh, on my tombstone, what I would love something to say, like, she lived life deliciously, you know? So I think about those things. Um, And I just like, you know, when I think about canonically, like the things that I want to say in the world, um, I absolutely, 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 absolutely know that I wanted to make a space for um, writing from about women of color that felt nuanced and authentic. And I feel like particularly quirky and weird, like, you know, because I'm quirky and weird and like, you know, sometimes we're not allowed to be quirky. We got to be the archetype for us is Mammy, Jezebel, Sapphire. I like anything that messes that up. Like I just feel, I like feel like, you know, I like anything that messes up the kind of narratives that predominate about Black people, Black, um, like African people, women, you know, um, of color. So um, I just want to, you know, let somebody say that she complicated the narrative. Thank you, Nana. 
Big thank you to Nana Inquetti for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Nana Inquetti's debut short story collection, Walking on Cowrie Shelves, out now from Grey Wolf Press. And if you're not following Nana, follow her on the socials. She's at Nana Inquetti on Twitter and Instagram. And that's N-A-N-A-N-K-W-E-T-I. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Nana about how all of the intersections she crosses in her own identity, she intentionally put into her characters and the stories they inhabit. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll highlight y'all next week when our guest will be Andy Rojas kicking off National Poetry Month. Peace.